0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you as I have been for low these many months from New York City. Um, we are joined from the Washington, D.C. area by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center and the New America Foundation. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And of course, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey.
1: Hello, my friends.
0: And our special guest today is Peter W. Singer, who is the co-author with August Cole of Burn-In, and Peter is also fellow at the New America Foundation. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome, welcome back. You have a, a great new book, and it's great for us to have the opportunity to talk about something other than that which we've been talking about for the past oh, 80 or 90 days, although I think there's some... Important overlaps between the content of your book and uh, you know what we're what we're talking about. You want to give the audience a thirty second snapshot before I turn to Corey and Rosa to offer their thoughts.
2: Sure. So, uh, Burnin is a new kind of book. It's a smash up of a novel and nonfiction. Uh, it sounds sort of strange, but what it is is that uh, it's a techno thriller. That follows an FBI agent on the hunt for a terrorist through a future Washington, D.C., just about 10, 15 years to the future. But baked into the story are some 300 explanations and predictions, along with the nonfiction endnotes to document how they're drawn from the real world. So you get a Hopefully, we'll hear from your, uh, the reviewers on the, on the call here, um, but hopefully you get an entertaining story. Uh, but along the way, you learn about everything from how does AI work, uh, how it's going to be applied, some of the political, security, legal dilemmas that we're all going to have to deal with, even down to family life. Uh, so I'm a parent. I liken it to sneaking fruit and veggies into the smoothie.
0: Meaning that that's the good stuff for you. There's something nutritional.
2: You get, you get the sweet stuff. You get the entertainment. Uh, but along the way, you get uh, that valuable uh, nutrition, so to speak.
0: So, Corey, you read the book. What do you think of this smoothie?
1: I did read the book. And I think it will do more for... Uh, how people understand the social, political, and interpersonal ramifications of artificial intelligence teaming, than anyone, any amount of journalism, any amount of earnest, well-meaning uh, reports, just as Ghostfleet helped all of us imagine what the high-tech war with China that could be coming would be like. Parenthetically, my favorite element of Ghost Fleet was the notion that Americans are actually terrific insurgents, that that's who we are as a political culture. What Burnin did for do you, me- You
0: never saw Red Dawn?
1: <laughs> no, this is way better. Oh, the American serial killer is Chef's Kiss in Ghost Fleet. <laughs> Um, But what Burn In does is help us understand both the positive and negative ways that artificial intelligence teamed up with human training and human kind of uh, contextualization of information is going to change both the economy, the security uh, aspects of our lives, but also the interpersonal ones. For me, this felt like a different kind of book than Ghost Fleet and much more in line with uh, maybe the Moynihan Report about about the collapse of family structure in black America that's now become the norm across all races. It felt very intensively about how relationships are gonna change and the isolation associated with the technologies that's coming if we don't make smart policy choices.
0: Well, I want to come back to that when we get when we get back to Peter, but I want to give Rosa a chance to provide a perspective. But before I do, because Corey, um, as is always the case, touches upon something I should have but didn't, uh, Peter and August Cole were also the authors of Ghost Fleet. So, if you're going directly to Amazon, Peter, I suppose you wouldn't Object if they bought both (laughs) Ghost Fleet
2: and Burn It. And and they also should check out some great work by uh, authors with the last name of Rothkoff, Brooks, and Shockey, too. Why not get the set and get a better (laughs) deal? Yeah, volume discount.
0: That's
3: actually, David, why isn't the DSR network swag store selling all of these things in packages? Oh, no, I
2: I must have scratched on something.
3: There we go. No, no, we should be
0: doing it. The thing that's going like wildfire at the DSR swag store at the moment are the deep state radio um, masks, The, 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 facial protection that we're offering in the midst of this uh, pandemic, but we should do books next. Rosa, I know you've had this book for a while and uh, these are subjects you've thought about. What do you think?
3: I I have this book. Um, I haven't finished it though. So I, I, I hope Corey is not going to spoil it by telling me how it ends. She Um, is, she is, she is. (laughs) No, it's not fair. No, I, I love this. I mean, I love, I love the work that Peter did at Ghost Fleet with, with August. And I love this too. I, I, I think Peter's absolutely right that fiction I mean, well, I maybe i'm 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 extrapolating too much from myself, but everything I know about anything I've learned from fiction I I, I I my attention span is too short to make it through long tomes of nonfiction. Uh, and I think humans need narratives to make sense of things. I, I also think that when you think about so many of the policy failures of our time, they're some of them are due to incompetence some of them are due to meanness but a lot of them are are simply due to lack of imagination in the sense that and and when i talk about policy failures i also mean the, the things that we don't do that we should do you know the the preparations we don't make that we should make that we are as a as a species we are not very good at figuring out what could happen and preparing in a way that is scaled appropriately because we our imaginations are too limited. We we assume that the way things are is the way things will continue to be. And that is not always the case. And I, I think that books like this, stories like this, that help us imagine futures um, in a way that other that frankly no amount of nonfiction and certainly sadly no amount of policy reports from think tanks or government agencies can ever do. You know, to help us say, I can see that future. I can feel that future. I can I can feel what it would be like to be a person struggling through that future. Uh-huh. You know, that that that's incredibly important to, to be able to do that. So I, I'm I think it's fantastic and I, I'm looking forward to finishing it, Curie and I will kill you if you spoil it.
0: <laughs> well, we, we <laughs> wouldn't want to be that. able to
1: reach me for months, Rosa. Now's <laughs> the time.
0: <laughs> well, we wouldn't want that to happen. Uh, it is a it is a great book it is a great novel. The characters in it are extremely well drawn um but you know one of the things that struck me uh in 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 reading it was it it sort of hit a nerve something I've actually had had some meetings and talked to to Rosa about it a little more more great length but it seems to me one of the great challenges we face as a country is that advanced technologies of several sorts, and AI is one of them, but biotechnology is another, and big data is another, and we could go on, um, are going to transform every aspect of our lives and are going to create policy challenges for government officials. And yet, the government officials we have are largely not just completely untrained in these areas. They don't even know the vocabulary with which to have the discussion, which creates a profound threat to us as a country. And now we've even taken it a step further where there is a substantial political group in the United States led by the president that is suggesting, you know, that science isn't that important. At just the moment when we are being overwhelmed by scientific challenges. And so to me, that's one of the reasons the book seems so timely. And I was wondering if that played any
2: role in why you were writing it, Peter. Oh, wow. Um, I agree with you on, on all those different counts and in part what we hope the book, I mean, we hope for some people, the reality is it's just going to be escapist is fun. Uh, and, and the good thing is it's not about a pandemic so you can, you can enjoy it. Um, but for uh, there was also a policy goal with this, um, and the goal is instead of the classic paper that you know is a, a lengthy paper and then it ends with the policy recommendations at the end, or maybe it's in a PowerPoint, is that instead we're hitting exactly what you talked about. We're giving people the ability to visualize the world to come, and we're not pulling merely from our imagination, we're pulling from the plans for it, whether it's, uh, here's what Union Station or Starbucks are gonna look like, that's actually pulled from the corporate plans or the plans for applying this into policing. And oh, by the way, if you don't believe me, here's the end note to show it. Um, And so giving people a way to visualize it, and importantly, that pops one kind of bubble, which is, uh, we the strange thing is just as science fiction is coming true. Um, we've got this problem of first, the way we talk about AI and science fiction always goes back to that idea of a robot uprising. Um, You know, we're literally on the 100-year anniversary, of the first time the word robot was created. And it was in a play where there are mechanical servants who wise up and then rise up. And then it continues all the way into, you know, Terminator movies and and whatnot. But also in the real world, Um, you see the debates on killer robots or existential threats. Well, the reality is we're going through an industrial revolution, but a really tough one. But also, we're going through it. Um, The Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Steve Mnuchin, said that these issues are not on his, quote, radar screen, end quote, because AI and automation is not going to matter for, quote, 50 to 100 years, end quote. That is not just insane. It is is verifiably wrong, right? And so um, one is we give people the ability to visualize it, understand it. And then the next part is just what you, you brought in, which is um, you give people the terms. Uh, you give people an understanding of not just here's the way it's going to be applied. Here's the things we're going to be debating and arguing about, and we better come up with solutions to it. But you do it in a way that goes to this idea that we call useful fiction. So take something like um, uh, algorithmic bias. Uh, it's a it's an incredibly important thing that we're all going to be wrestling with, whether it's um, you're a policymaker, you're a police officer, you're a parent, um, and it's a fairly complex topic, um, but it has you know real risks. Uh, it's been the cause of um, car wrecks. It's been the cause of uh, so algorithm bias is basically when the AI issues a biased recommendation or action. Um, and no one planned or or meant for it. So the funny version of this would be if you're a fan of the um, TV show The Office, uh, when Michael and and Dwight are in the car and they follow the GPS even when it drives them into the lake, um, that's the funny version. The dark version is Tesla car wrecks or a different one is we've seen um, racist recommendations, true bias of a new kind. Uh, They were using AI as a um, screener for who should get bank loans and no one told the AI to be racist, but it was yielding a result that was saying not to give any African-Americans a bank loan. So this is important, fairly complex thing. Most people are not going to read a white paper on it, but we try and show it through the book in a scene where, for example, our main character is an FBI agent. She's at Union, train, Union Station, the train station, and she's trying to find a terrorist in the crowd of people. And so very quickly, you can kind of visualize it. You can drop yourself into that story. It's exciting. But at the end of that scene, you've just come away with an understanding of algorithmic bias. Right.
0: Um, uh, another form of algorithmic bias, by the way, is um, that a lot of the code is written by men. And so there's, there's a lot of bias there. We don't have that problem here on Deep State Radio. Uh, because, you know, almost all our code is is written by women one way or another. Corey, you can make a comment or ask Peter a question about both.
1: <laughs> I want to ask Peter a, question, a couple of questions about the book. A couple of, um, I love how much it made me think. There were a couple of things in the book that I wonder if they were conscious choices on August and your part. Um, because... Um, So one thing is a straight out question that has to do with the timeline in the book. One of the things that I noticed is that maybe for for strength of narrative storytelling, you telescoped this down into a few central characters. And one of the things that seemed a stretch of plausibility for me is whether the bad guy could single-handedly do all of the searching and coding required to pull off the damage that he does. I didn't go through and check the footnotes on that part of it. Is that plausible? Did you have to force that into the timeline of of the storytelling? Educate me on that piece of it, please.
2: So you know we need to be where we can't plot spoil too much for Rosa and even more uh, the listeners. But um, one of the things that that uh, and 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 you probably notice different from um, Ghost Fleet is that it's a rather than a wide cast of characters, it's it's a two handed story. Uh, you follow. Um, our hero and uh, actually going back to what David was saying about um, diversity, it's a different kind of hero. It's a, it's a female character at the center of that, which is um, different for most techno thrillers. And then you have a bad guy who's um, a new kind of villain and um, the deliberate choice uh, that that is showing on the nonfiction side is one of the changes that this technology creates is, um, uh, we are seeing the equivalent of uh, the powers that a nation state or even large organizations used to have now is coming down to individuals, particularly, and it's not just on the threat side, but particularly when you cross it with the changes of um, what's called the Internet of Things, or sometimes people think about it as the spark city, uh, that you um, essentially uh, have, whether it's smart homes, smart power grids, uh, driverless cars, smart buildings, you name it, all being woven together, but it changes the different kind of um, threats that you can accomplish. And um, the scary thing for people who live in Washington, D.C. is that, uh, man, in the real world, what we are baking into our vulnerabilities is just uh, uh, amazing. Um, and you find it either through, you know, again, you have to, we document it, would be a lot easier to just have the bad guy go clickety clack. I'm in, um, like they do in, you know, the, the TV shows and in cybersecurity. Instead, it's pulling from what are real world vulnerabilities, either reports about it or interviews that we did with people. Um, for example, someone who worked on the, the sewer system of Washington, DC, not to give uh, something away, uh, revealed to us, uh, literally how you could flood part of the metro system, part of our subway system, um, just. By flipping a couple of valves, uh, it was funny. Is that the interview with him? Um, his wife uh, yells out, "You don't know him that well. Don't tell him which for. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but so um, the this. Sh- that's a long answer. Are you answer. going sh- to
3: use your powers for good or for evil?
2: Uh, <laughs> I hope, and we talk about this. Is um, you know, people frame it as like a future, you know, prediction. I hope a little bit like what played out with Ghost Fleet is that it's um, a mix of prediction, but also prevention. Uh, That there are things in the book that do not happen, in part because people having read the book. And it might be something as specific as, um, hey, this is a nightmare scenario uh, that I see, um, and I don't want that to happen to my organization. Uh, With Ghost Fleet at Spark, for example, a couple of um, investigations that closed off vulnerabilities. Um, Or it might be, to David's question, something broader. Hey, I'm really concerned about this kind of scenario. What are we going to put into place? Um, Or I'm going to be smarter so I don't make the same mistakes that this character in the book makes. Um, But, sorry, that's a real long wind away. The the short answer to you, Corey, is yes, you can do it. Uh, You can can do each of these things. Um, That actually makes the writing of it a heck of a lot harder um, because it would just be so much easier to just kind of wave your hands at that stuff.
0: It, it, interesting, Rosa. Um, another another question, I, question besides yeah, the so one I, you I threw in. I have in a question
3: this? for Peter. Um, other than whether he's going to use his powers for good or for evil. Um, so, Peter, at because one
0: point... Because we, we know the answer to that, don't we?
3: And we're not going to tell anyone. No. Um, at one point, Peter, you and I were talking about uh, uh, how policing may change or could change if we aren't thoughtful about uh, decisions made in the next five years or so. Um, and I wonder, um, as, as you know, my, my, my sideline is as a D.C. Reserve police officer, Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that piece of the book as and and beyond, um, you know, if you were talking to big city police chiefs or the head of the FBI, uh, what are the pieces of this that you would really pull out for them to think about?
2: Yeah. And I think, um, in many ways it links back to, you've said it as kind of a joke, uh, forces for good or evil. Um, but it's also a theme running through the book that, um, one person's utopian vision of the future is another person's dystopian version. And they're at times, um, uh, a very fine line between them. And you think about, you know, going back to that reference to, uh, face recognition technology, we are, um, seeing it planned to be rolled out, you know, everywhere from, um, Uh, There's military programs on it. There's obviously uh, police forces uh, around the world. Um, Big cities in the U.S. are already starting to apply it. Um, it's also being used by corporations, um, and including, you know, places that would surprise you. Uh, for example, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, is planning to, um, implement face recognition. I knew the Colonel was up to no good. Yeah. It's not Big Brother. It's going to be Big Colonel. Um, and you know, they even tested it out in, in a store in China. Um, and, uh, you can quickly see, you know, they're, they're looking at it to know who the customer is. Maybe figure out what your wants and needs are, um, but oh, by the way, you can quickly sort of feel a little bit creepy about uh, big Colonel there. Or similarly, you know, as you well know, there's tools that you might have as a police officer um, that will make you a, a better police officer. Whether it's that face recognition, whether it's being able to then, more importantly, it's not just face recognition; it's being able to tie that back into all the other data tracking of our lives so that you will know that person and their life history, whether they are currently in an investigation. You'll be able to look over that crowd and see all that. But first, it changes the way you look at that crowd and the citizens that you are policing. And in turn, it will surely affect the way that citizens look at the police officer and those relationships. And um, so, and and that's something that, you know, you asked for the police. officer. I think that's also the recommendation for the, the Silicon Valley of the world is that whatever you're pushing out there, you need to be looking at it from multiple different perspectives. You may think this is a really cool new tech that's going to solve one problem, but oh, by the way, it might look very differently if you are from a different background of a different income level, whatever. The more broader thing is um, also uh, if technology is our businesses, our cities. It'll change, obviously, policing in terms of the crimes that you're looking for. So every time you get a new technology, um, you get new crimes using that technology. Uh, A a fun example of this would be they get horseless carriages and then suddenly have to figure out um, uh, speeding. Uh, The first speeding ticket was issued in 1896 um. You get not all. Not so.
3: Not so, Peter. It, uh, President Ulysses S. Grant was arrested for speeding on his horse and carriage in Washington D.C. on the National Mall. Okay,
2: the first horseless carriage one. Thank you. Um, by a
3: D.C. By a D.C. police character. officer. I, I
2: apologize for that. Um, the first horseless carriage law, to be more technical, that Ulysses, it was not just that the individual was speeding. The original law was that you had to have someone walk with a flag in front of the car to warn people that you were coming. And you couldn't go past, um, I believe it was uh, uh, three miles per hour. (laughs) And someone in an early Benz, not a Mercedes Benz, a Benz, violated that in Great Britain and was fined a shilling. Well, Peter, I um, so, think
3: it's it's very suitable that your book uh, opens with FBI agents stuck in future d c. traffic full of full of autonomous cars, which is also not moving at anything faster than three miles an hour. So that actually seems totally appropriate,
2: yeah. and so so that hits, you know, first, we've got the new crimes and all the different ways that bad guys might use these technologies that you're going to have to police. You'll see new crimes of, Um, You know, uh, using robots to rob someone, using robots to carry out a murder. Or it's maybe, to Corey's, um, uh, we'll plot spoil here, uh, hacking a smart home to conduct an act of arson that kills someone. Or maybe it's something at a bigger level. It's terrorism. Um, The first horseless carriage bomb, car bomb, 1905, going after the Ottoman sultan. We'll see the same we're you know terrorists using uh this in a major way, and you know and we we play with that in the book, but then you have a second thing that um you know police are going to have to wrestle with, which are new kind of crimes that are unique to the technology because it's intelligent and able to operate on its own out there, so this is the issue of like what we call machine permissibility um the less wonky version of it is basically. When there, when the Tesla or whatever future car um, accidentally kills someone, who do we blame? Um, and this is a you know an interesting thorny question. And then the final new legal policing question is not just what can we do with our machines and what are our machines allowed to do, but also what are you yeah. allowed to do to a machine. Which you would you know not care about if it was you know a car or a toaster, but there are certain things that we may not be comfortable uh, allowing people to do to their robots, and again, this sounds super sci-fi, except, oh, by the way, it's here right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, we've got about 10, 12 minutes left, Corey, you want to go for another?
1: I do, I do. Um, they, there were two. Um, st- Uh, Two social science precedents that I kept hearing ringing around as I was reading the book. The first one, as I mentioned, was the Moynihan Report, um, which argued uh, that um, fixing civil rights, redressing the lack of civil rights by black Americans was gonna be insufficient to create the progress we wanted to make in America. And that the lack of economic opportunities for, in particular, Black men was perverting the the traditional relationships in marriages and leading to the breakdown of the Black family in ways that would keep Black children in poverty moving forward. And I was thinking of that so much as I was reading the book because of the relationship between the husband and the wife. And I wonder if you had that consciously in mind. And the second one that I thought about was Robert Putnam's wonderful book, *Bowling Alone, about how the atomization of American society was sharpening polarization and reducing empathy. Because I was so struck in reading the book that there are there's none of the civic society connection that are is a dominant feature of most American lives. There are no PTA meetings, there are no condo boards, there are no there's nothing that gives people human connections. and so I wonder. Uh, where where the momentum for that came from in the book, and in particular, whether those two social science uh, reports had any weight in how August and you were thinking.
2: Oh, wow. This, this truly is, we are such a group of wonks on Deep State Radio uh, to, to reference all these. Um, so on, on the first um, short answer, no, we didn't have the Moynihan report in mind. Um, When it comes to those themes and trends, it was actually uh, a combination of, um, uh, again, the sort of the nonfiction research of pulling out all the different uh, reports on Job automation and how it will hit different occupations. We uh, literally we built a database of every single report we could find. There's 1,300 different ones in all, um, from what the World Bank predicts to what McKinsey predicts to what Brookings predicts. um, You name it, and you know, essentially they estimate everything from 47% of jobs will see automation to the low end is um, that we could find was OECD at 9%. Either one, that is a significant hit. And then you get to, you know, when people this, say... by the oh. way, is
0: not how um, Tom Clancy wrote his novel.
2: <laughs> no. He, he had uh, no
0: databases.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, uh, same thing with uh, female characters. Is uh, You know, I love my Clancy. I particularly love my, my early Clancy, but um, a little bit clunky on, on some of that. Um, but uh, so, But the thing is, is when people talk about that automation, they'll sometimes go... Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, we'll get new jobs or and they sort of wave their hands at it. Um, but, you know, the first is it's a, it, whether it's 9 percent or 47 percent, whichever one you care about, it'll be a really difficult transition for those people who are going through it. And then often what they said was what you will get, oh, but you'll get a gig job working from home. Isn't that going to be great? And of course, um, one is we're all now experiencing working from home is not all that great in all the different ways. And two, again, from the nonfiction side, gig jobs have other consequences. The lack of certainty, the the feeling like you're always on the hamster wheel, all that's difficult. And so that's how we um, we deliberately chose the, identity of um the husband of the main character to be this um lawyer who's been uh bottomated. So he'd been in a, you know, he's someone who's done everything right. He got went got good grades at the right school, got a high power job, and then he lost it and now he's working remotely on gig work. And so then that allows you with the fiction to tell that story in an even better way. How does it hit him and his emotions and you make it real for people. On the the Putnam one, the bowling alone, um, yeah, that was actually something a little bit in the back of mind, but it hits how another theme that we play with is how trust in America is um, changing, and it feels like we're losing it, and trust in um, politics, trust in uh, our infrastructure, trust in each other and um, that those connections are fraying, um, you know, maybe for a lot of people, they're at a great condo, and everyone knows each other. But our character, I mean, maybe it just feels a little more realistic to me where she, she says, yeah, you know, there's neighbors that I, I say hello when I cross paths in the hallway, but we're not, you know, bringing cups of sugar to each other. I've got a job. I've got kids. I don't have time for this. But then it means when things fall apart, you also don't have those same connections. Um, and I, that, that, you know, I think Putnam was, was onto something. Um, and I think we are particularly feeling that right now.
0: Rosal, last question from you.
3: No, I was going to say, um, I, I imagine Peter, because of the pandemic that most of your book publicity events are going to have to be virtual events, which actually seems quite, quite fitting um, given the themes of the book. Um, what, what, so I know the book, the book doesn't officially come out for another week or so. Um, um, but what are the, what are the comments that you have been most surprised by from people who have read it so far comments or criticism or questions? I mean, is it, is it pretty much what you expected or are there reactions that have taken you by surprise?
2: So the, the, the biggest surprise has been what you referenced at the start, the context of pushing this, this out there. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a, for everybody, it's a totally different environment. And, um, you've noted a number of books have come out since, but, um, most of them did not have a choice. They were already in the pipeline. What you are, what we're now moving in the period, I'm kind of pulling back the veil. Um, all the big movies moved. Um, and many of the books that, that could move moved. And uh, we, we joke about it that um, you know, both uh, Wonder Woman and James Bond and the wimpy kid moved. Why did we decide to stay? And for us, it was, um, we thought, one, people really do need an escapist read right now, but two, um, that we had something to say relevant to the, the world uh, that we're dealing with more importantly, we're going to come out of um, that all these forces that we saw um, in the book were already in play. but They're being accelerated by the pandemic. Um, you know, whether we're talking about, we were talking about remote work or we're talking and in some areas we've, we've pushed past what people thought would ever happen and others, we moved on a faster timeline. Uh, so um, I'm familiar with telemedicine, um, telemedicine in a couple of weeks, we went to the level that people in that industry thought would take 10 years. Um, or to your question about policing, uh, we're deploying robotics in ways that, again, were thought, you know, using the police curfews to clean subways to, you know, using AI surveillance of a society. I mean, this has gone incredibly fast, but it also means all those um, legal, ethical, political, moral questions are going to come faster, you know, so what the characters experience, we're going to experience faster in the real world. So that, you know, in terms of the not predicted, the, the quicker, greater application of it to our real world, um, was one I did not anticipate the, also the need for people to have a escapist read, um, takes on a whole new meaning. Um, right now, I know we're, we're all personally experiencing that. Um, and so that, the, the change of the, um, you know, there's, I'd been planning my, um, you know, year around a traveling book tour. And instead, um, you know, I'm doing it all from uh, the home and, and downstairs and maybe you hear it, maybe you don't, I've got, you know, an elementary school running. Um, and uh, it's different. Um, but, you know, you, you do it and um, it's, you know, if you can't do, travel events. um, I've been doing, whether it's sessions like this to, I've done speeches to U.S. Army units to um, a nursing home. And the nursing home speech, it was actually, you know, done through uh, their, um, they have like an internal cable TV network for the nursing home. And of course, that took on a whole new meaning, right? And in, in, in all of this, um, so I think that's been the biggest surprise. Um, otherwise, it's been um, the the earlier views have been. I mean, you all know this as writers. You spend years on something, and then you kind of just toss it over, and you hope it goes well. Um, so far, it's it's they've been really kind. And um, you know, the one thing I will I will fight anyone on is I think we've got the most bizarre combination of early reviewers of any book in history. Um, You know, so we've got our Wonkland, you know, um, uh, General Petraeus, former head of uh, NATO, former head of U.S. Navy, um, you know, uh, and Marine Corps, all that, you know, Wonkland type. And then at the other end, we've got, you know, the writer of, Lost and Watchmen and the new Star Trek movies. These are not people who normally come together. And I think it's because, again, that double hand of for some people, it's I find it useful. For other people, I just found it fun.
0: I think one of the great things about this book and the approach that you guys have taken on this book and on Ghost Fleet is, of course, that the fiction and making it stories about people draws in a much broader audience. And the combination of fact and fiction is extremely compelling. I think it's even more compelling to people who are living their life now, living their life on Zoom, working remotely, hoping for uh, science to come up with a cure to a disease, worried about what will happen when uh, AI might create diseases, much, much less Cure diseases. Um, uh, seeing a robot in the park as, as as you know, was experimented with in 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 uh, uh, Singapore, for example. I saw one of those Boston Robotics robot dogs telling people to stay apart from each other. You know, it all it's 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 fact and it's fiction, but it's also all around you right now, and so that gives the book a kind of an urgency, um, which should lead everybody. To go out and, and order Burn In, uh, but of course for deep state radio nerds, this is obviously the novel they should be reading. As you pointed out earlier, um, they are wonks, or, or or you know, and and this is the kind of thing that combines uh, the stuff that's most interesting to them with a great story. And so we encourage them to go and 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 buy Burn In from PW. Singer and August Cole. And we want to thank you, Peter, for joining us. And we want to, uh, of course, as always, thank you, Rosa. And thank you, Corey. Uh, for those of you who uh, want to follow us and 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 get more information on what we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Later this week, we have not one but two members of Congress. We're going to do a one-on-one with Representative Debbie Dingell uh, of Michigan. And then on our Thursday show, we are joined by Congressman Jim Himes, one of the smartest and most uh, 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 interesting members of Congress. Uh, so, Join us for those. Go to the DSrnetwork.com to find out more. Buy Peter's book. Uh, as he says, buy it with Rose's book and Corey's book. You know, I mean, you know, you could, you could do, you know, your, your share there. And uh, we'll see you all soon. Stay healthy.